21st Century Women on Cambridge 105 Radio and HCR 104 FM. On this programme, we'll be talking to Kath Sansom, a local journalist who has just been named in the independent newspaper as one of the female groundbreakers of 2017 because of her Sling the Mesh campaign. We also speak to Dr Kim Taylor, who was awarded an OBE in the New Year's Honours for services to education. Dr Taylor is head of Spring Common School in Huntingdon, which she and her team took from special measures to outstanding. And Louise Wilson talks to Gary Chapman, a Cambridge hairdresser who specialises in providing wigs for people suffering from hair loss. He tells Louise about how modern wigs provide a much better experience than those of the past and about the people he helps. That's all coming up on this edition of 21st Century Women. In the studio we have Bobby Jones. Hello. And we have Liz Kelly. Hello there. Hello ladies. I hope you're all well. We're coughing like mad. We're all coughing like mad, I'm not, yes. I'm okay. I don't think I'll cough. <laughs> Now, the first piece that we have this evening is quite tricky. You know, being diagnosed with cancer, devastating, but the terrible side effects can be equally traumatic. For those undergoing chemotherapy, women in particular can be left horrified if hair loss occurs. Louise Wilson met someone who helps people get through the experience. It's Gary Chapman, a Cambridge hairdresser. I'm now joined by Gary Chapman from Scruffs here in Cambridge and he's here to tell me more about some very special work that he does helping people with hair loss. I'm really excited to talk to you actually because I've heard about this through a friend of mine who's been to see you and uh, she says you've just done some amazing work. So Yeah, I think we're doing some, yeah, doing some quite magic things at Scruffs at the moment yeah. when it comes to the hair pieces and wigs. I mean, how did you get started in the industry itself? Right, okay, well, I'm, I'm all of 44 years old now. So I started in the industry when I was 14 years old, actually, going into my father's uh, salon um, when I was a, a Saturday boy, as they yeah. used to call it. So we were getting all clear of eight, eight pound fifty a day, going in to clear up and and do lots of cleaning. Um, obviously, get to wash hair eventually. So yeah, at the age of fourteen, I started, and that was at the time actually, you know, quite a few years ago that my father was already getting involved in the wig business, which he likes to call hair pieces, but I still call wigs. Yeah, uh, and like I said, you're here because a friend of mine, because she's currently going through chemotherapy, and she told me about the work that you do. And your dad, why did he feel particularly drawn then to doing this? Do you think? I think, to be honest with you, because he kind of become a quite a a face of Cambridge when it come to hairdressing. I think my dad was obviously asked a few times, you know, John, um, while they're cutting a lady's hair, one of his clients' hair, John, uh, I'm going to have to go through chemotherapy. So obviously my hair's going to go. And I think my dad felt a little bit lost that he couldn't help. Mm. And I think that was literally the trigger. That was when it all kicked off to think, hold on a minute, I've got to do something about this. There's a lot of people out there who are obviously given an NHS hairpiece or wig, which are fantastic. Mm. Uh, But my dad wanted to go a bit further and he wanted to try and find something that was even better. That yeah. didn't look like a wig. Because exactly. actually that's the that thing. That is the big thing because look, yeah. it can be very devastating being given a wig and pop it on your head and it doesn't become you. Yeah. You know, it becomes somebody else and it almost you almost have that that light above you saying, you know, that you're having chemotherapy because everybody knows you're wearing a wig. Yeah. So my dad wanted to look at trying to find something out there that didn't look like a wig which took him many years yeah it took him a long time to find losing one's hair can be a like a really especially for a woman although it's, i don't rule out men but particularly for women you know their hair is almost like a crown crowning glory yep. so to lose it um so the nature of what you do must mean that you have to strike a you know delicate balance my dad obviously was the one who taught me all about the the, the consultation which we always say con- consultation in most businesses is key to find out a little bit about somebody but also it's, it's sitting down with that with that client and normally they bring a family member with them and we sit down and we're screened off from anybody else and it's very, very private. And it's an emotional roller coaster. Uh, just walking into my salon can be very difficult to know, you know, this is really happening. I've really have got cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my hair really is going to come out uh, normally around 14 days after the first chemo. So I get to normally see people before that happens. But, you know, they're, 
they're very vulnerable and once they come to meet me I normally calm most things down and we just have a good chat about what's going to be happening and what I would like to try and achieve for them and then show them some products you know very lightly you can't just pull a wig out of a bag and pop it on someone's head yeah you know you need to get them prepared for this because they don't want to wear one but at some point, they're probably going to have to. But, you know, some people obviously wear a bandana and that's absolutely fine. When it came to providing this this particular service, did you speak to doctors or nurses and try and get some idea yeah. of how to, yeah. in, you know, engage with people? Yeah. And I've done some training with Macmillan, who, as we all know, are fantastic. Mm. Um, and we've done lots of role playing because what you think is the right thing to say, being a friendly, bubbly person I am, sometimes can be the wrong angle. Yep. So, yeah, we've had a lot of training with that. And actually, becoming a, a hairdresser of, of as many years as I've been, we, as you said, you know, we do become therapists anyway. And some people will tell you just having a haircut of, of some problems they've got or uh, problems with their family or somebody, they've lost a loved one. So, you know, you do become that sort of caring person and you need to become, become a good listener. But not to get too smothered in it as well and start blubbering with the client. You've got to be quite strong. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, actually, I mean, that's that's it. How do you deal with that? I mean, because as you said, it's an emotional roller coaster with this with this person, and obviously as well because you're getting to know them. I guess you kind of get emotionally involved as well, do you not? You really do, and. Um, I've been caught out a couple of times, I'll have to admit, you know, we are, we do put ourselves down as professional people, but, you know, I've, I've obviously dealing, which we'll talk about, dealing with some of the children, you know, and they've only just been told they've got cancer, they're scared, the mum and dad are really scared as well, and sometimes some of the stories, that, that it does catch me out a little bit, and I have to pretend there's a little bit of dust in my eye, and I might need to just walk away from the situation for a minute, because we're human beings, you know, mm. and it is hard sometimes, but normally we can kind of get on with it, and we have to drive forward, and give give a lot of respect to the situation, basically. We did also want to highlight the fact that it's not just cancer, is it, that, no. that affects hair loss no, and people not. that come to you? I have quite a lot of calls. I'd probably say kind of every other day I'll have a lady call me, probably sort of touching around the 50-year year mark, and they're ringing me to say, Gary, I need to come and see you for the free consultation um, to come and talk to you about my very much thinning hair. Um, it's really got me down. My husband's noticed it. My partner's noticed it. Uh, I, I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. Most of the ladies coming to see me, I tend to try and put a smile back on their face just by talking about what's going on. I have to remind people that I'm not a doctor, I'm not a dermatologist or a trichologist, but I've got to see a lot what's going on so I can give some good advice. And normally, a lot of the time, it can be through over or underactive thyroid glands. Um, so I do make sure that the client has been to see their do doctor normally before coming to see me to get some blood tests. Mm. Uh, lupus can be a very big part of, of hair loss. And also normally going into slight, slightly younger people, but anorexia can be a bit, very mm. big thing as well. Uh, and I do deal with the clinic quite a lot at Adam Brooks for that because if somebody has um, some eating problems, then the hair can definitely take an, a nosedive. You're beautiful. You're beautiful, you're beautiful, it's true. In terms of what you use for the wigs and the hair pieces, yeah. is it always natural hair? No, no. So let's, let's, um, let, yeah, let's talk about the, the wig, okay? Now, if somebody's coming to me, uh, as an example, of coming to me because of chemotherapy, okay, their hair is going to go through what we call a temporary hair loss programme. OK, so their hair after the after the first dose of chemo within about 14 days, as my father taught me, the hair is going to go on holiday. Yeah. All right. The hair's going to come back. That. It's a great saying. It's got, it normally gets people smiling a little bit. So the hair's going to go on holiday and it's going to come back. All right. So we're there to try and help them through that 10 to 12 months of of, you know, probably looking a little bit like me. Yeah. <laughs> Just took my hat off. Yeah. Um, so the, the hair pieces or the wigs that I recommend for somebody going through chemotherapy will be a fibre piece, a synthetic hair piece, which sounds like I'm about to put someone on a pantomime. <laughs> I'm not. The new latest development in hair pieces, are even uh, I can't believe how fantastic they are now. Most people think they are human hair. Mm. Now, the beautiful thing about a synthetic hair piece is that you wash them once a month and you give them a little shake and they go straight back to style. So you don't have to worry about the weather. That hairstyle will stay exactly the same. Okay, they're phenomenal. They're brilliant. So once a month they get washed in the products that I give you. They're actually a fibre shampoo and conditioner. 
give them a shake, pop them on a little stand and your hair's ready in the morning, slip it on and off you go. And if someone is going through chemo, you've got to remember the energy levels are up and down. They don't want to be styling a hairpiece. So jumping straight from that into human hair, which is absolutely beautiful. Mm. Not everybody can afford human hair. The human hair um, hair pieces can be um, quite tricky to look after sometimes. They will frizz up. They will go a little bit curly as you know, this human hair. Mm. It reacts in exactly the same way. So you do have to care for it in a slightly different way. They are a little bit harder to look after. Now let's let's um, give a situation. If one of my ladies comes to me with alopecia with uh, perhaps totalis um, they may know that they're hair may not be coming back they may be entering a permanent hair loss issue if that's the case then human hair is wonderful mm. they can come into my salon wearing the wonderful human hair and come and have their piece washed come and have it blow dried and become you know become a lady again obviously mm. i can't miss men out some men yeah. do obviously go which we can talk about some men do go for for, for hair pieces as well so yeah, synthetic is a lot easier to look after and actually technically half the price. Um, they don't quite last quite as long, but they normally get you out of trouble when you're going through your chemo. Because they're more temporary pieces. They are temporary and, and the fibre sometimes can um, can get what we call friction frizz. So you must never ever let anybody sell you a synthetic hairpiece that's really past your shoulders mm. because it really will not last very long. Even eight weeks, it could start looking. Uh, they get very frizzy. They look like um, they need thrown away. Mm. With the human hairpieces as well, it's not just come from one person either, has no, it? No, no. If anybody's got any hair uh, seven inches or longer, and it's in pretty good condition and they haven't bleached it a hundred times, um, it doesn't matter if there's a little bit of colour because they will be analysing it to see the strength of the hair. And unfortunately, some hair might not get used. Um, then seven inches or below, a little bit longer, is the sort of hair that you can have cut off and sent away. But normally it comes off five to seven different people's heads to make one wig. Cause you, so you can imagine how many donations they need. And I must say, the Little Princess Trust um, are getting a lot of donations. It's really exciting. A lot of young people are having their hair cut off. And because of social media and it being mm. so aware, they're going, oh, mummy, I'll, I want to donate my hair to perhaps another little girl who may be That's going amazing. through some kind of medication where yeah. their hair is going to have its holiday. I, I had a little girl actually come to me. She's three years old. I don't normally deal with kids that young. And she came to me with her mother. They live quite a way out of Cambridge. She had had some treatment in Addenbrookes and she had obviously said to her mum, Mummy, I would like hair again, please. So they got in contact with me via the Little Princess Trust and I got the wig sorted out, got it donated. And this was it's such a powerful thing. This little girl at three came by private ambulance to my salon. She trickled in with her mother. The, the ambulance driver waited in our lounge area of the salon. And this little girl was gifted her hair back. And I popped it on her head and she had a little tube in her nose. You know, she'd obviously been through the mill that morning. Uh, she'd been pumped full of medicine. And um, her smile was huge. Um, mm. And it really touched everybody in the salon. Mm. The little girl smiled. We put it in a little ponytail and that little girl left with hair. And it took me all of, well, probably all of 15 minutes to change that little girl back into a little girl mm. from coming in looking like a, a chemotherapy patient, yeah. going back out as you know, a little princess. Mm. And um, that was special. And that doesn't happen that often with that smaller children. And it doesn't matter what age they are, you know, getting a teenager back into so they can go out and see their friends. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming in. I, I mean, I think the work you're doing is absolutely brilliant and uh, long may it continue um, thank you. to help people. And, thank you. Yeah, well, we have, got a web, we have got a website. So if people want to know a little bit more uh, on the, just look up Scruffs in Cambridge and there's a website. There's every bit of information on there and all my contact numbers and emails. Gary Chapman, thank you very much for thank joining you, me today. I saw your face in a crowded place And I don't know what to do Cause I'll never be with you That was Louise Wilson chatting to Gary Chapman who helps people suffering from hair loss.
That last story was lovely, really, wasn't it? About the little girl coming into the salon who decided that she wanted hair again. It must be so tough on kids. Well, anyone, but, you know, kids particularly. Your heart goes out to them, especially school-age kids and teenagers. Teenagers, yes. Mm -hmm. I I can imagine school-age kids are probably still playing with dolls and so they'd be very aware of hairstyles, wouldn't they? And wanting to keep their hair nice. And as you see, teenagers, nightmare, because, um, I mean, I guess looks are really important, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, really, really tough. But um, so great that there are people like Gary around if you are having a problem like that. And of course, it's not just chemotherapy. Uh, So, you know, people who are going through that uh, treatment... I guess alopecia sufferers as well, you yep. know. And I remember my, my father had a hairdressing salon. And when I was young, there used to be something called electric treatment that were, was meant to stimulate hair growth. So, And my dad would always do this in, in the shop because none of the, the girls that worked for him wanted to do it. <laughs> and it was a kind of big electric comb thing that was plugged into the mains and made a very zzz noise. Sounds scary. It really, I think it was quite scary. And he would just draw this through the hair for, I don't know, five, ten minutes, whatever the treatment was. And it was meant to stimulate hair growth. No idea whether it worked or not or whether it was a fad of the time. But I remember it happening. I've not heard of it since. It may no. have been a fad, but I think hairdressers do sometimes massage your scalp, don't they, to mm-hmm. sort of to stimulate the, the, the follicles, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting uh, piece on, and it's something you don't think about. I, I think that's what I thought was so fascinating about that interview. It's just something that, mm. unless you come across it, you would never really think about. But they're doing it. Day in, day out, that's a service that they're mm. giving to people. You've obviously got a crowning glory, Linda. That's why you don't think about <laughs> I've it. I've got very thick hair. Yeah. <laughs> this is 21st Century Women. Dr Kim Taylor, the head of Spring Common Academy, was awarded an OBE in the New Year's Honours for Services to Education. Spring Common is a community special school which is rated as outstanding in all categories by Ofsted. Bobby Jones talked to Dr Taylor about her professional life and how it felt to receive the OBE. I'm sitting here in one of the rooms in Spring Common Academy School. And this is a very impressive school where a very impressive lady is the head. She's Dr. Kim Taylor. Congratulations on being awarded your OBE. Yes, quite a shock and um, a huge honour. <laughs> yes. How long ago were you told? I only found out through the post, actually, with a, a brown paper envelope. It has cabinet office all over it towards the end of November. Oh. And uh, you're very much told to keep it yes. a secret. So yeah, don't offend the Queen, really. Yes. <laughs> so I understand it's very secret, isn't it? Mm. So November, and of course the announcement was on the first of January. So two months you had to keep it quiet. That was quite hard. <laughs> Were you allowed to tell your family? I only told my family because it was announced quite early this time. Right. It goes in the London Gazette. So I told my family just the day before because I knew that they wouldn't keep it secret. <laughs> So um, that was quite hard to go through Christmas and not tell them. They must have been so proud of you. Of course they were. I have a sister and brother in Australia and my sister, I I used the WhatsApp and uh, had the video on just to see the reaction. And it was, oh, no way. She was really excited. So that was lovely uh, to get that excitement because most of my family really don't really know what I do day to day. I mean, they don't know what it's like to work in a special school. So they have absolutely no idea. They just know I've spent all my life doing that and uh, no idea of all the work I've Right, so you've been in special schools right from the beginning. No, I, I started off working in secondary schools, but I did some initial training in special education. So I've always taught special needs children. At the beginning, it was often thought that many children were uneducable you know and you know it was more about caring for them rather than <laughs> educating them so I've, I've seen a huge um, shift in attitudes towards um, disability and also their participation in society so it's been a real pleasure to see that really. When, when you first started where did you first teach? Where in My the country? My first job was actually in Chipping Norton um, Secondary School which had um, um, what was known as an ESN which was a, a moderate learning difficulties of unit attached 
So I was employed to work in the Moderate Learning Difficulties Unit and um, I also taught English because in those days it was really important to um, raise the profile really of special needs teachers. I know it might sound ridiculous but at the time, you know, I hot-footed it out of college and university, I had an honours degree and so I taught um, examination groups at the same time and that made me feel part of the staff. It raised the profile of the teachers that I'd actually chosen to do that. I mean, it may seem... So you, you were the only one teacher teaching special needs children in that school? No, there, were a, there was a team. There was oh, a right. team of us, Good. yes. Um, because we had quite a number. Um, and in fact, uh, it was interesting because in that area they had a lot of Gypsy Romani children and I taught those at the beginning. That was really quite interesting. I had a lot of fun with them, actually, because they, you know, um, if, they, if you really show that you're really interested in Gypsy Roma sort of um, young people, they are amazing. And they have such an enthusiasm for life. So uh, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> it and was a real pleasure. They're not really special needs in the way that we think of it today. No. It's simply because they kept moving around that their education had been um, messed about with, really. Yes, and some of them did have learning difficulties, mm. and I think we need to realise that you know special needs can cross over all walks of life. So, yes, part of my time was to actually re help parents to realise that although they were in my unit, actually that their children who were from these gypsy traveller sites were actually very able and actually the parents were quite appreciative that I didn't recognise that because mm. I quickly was able mm. to get them to read, which was great. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, um, unfortunately they didn't stay in education for very long. Mm. They used to sort of leave, um, you yes. know, the boys particularly by the time they were about 14. You were lucky to keep them that long really but you know I did feel a great sense of accomplishment that I'd managed to get them to read so I thought that was great so I started Absolutely. doing that. Absolutely yes. <laughs> yeah, so I spent a lot of time working with them and also working with a range of children because even in secondary schools at that time Oxfordshire was quite enlightened they had a lot of inclusion but it was locational <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, rather yes. than sort of that they were integrated in the rest of the school. So I thought it was really important that I was integrated into the rest of the school, which I worked very hard on. So that enabled me to then, well, I can bring some of my children into some of my classes sometimes yes. if they were able to do that. So that's what I did in my next job. <laughs> so I then moved, because um, I got married, um, and I then moved to um, Shropshire. And um, then I specifically went for jobs in special needs okay. and that's what moved me over to um, the east of England because um, I was you know I was brought up in the north of England I had to persuade my husband to move to the east of England <laughs> and we did and I worked in a residential special school and I was very interested to do that because actually that was developing my knowledge and skills but again, I learned a lot from the staff. You're only as good as the people you work with, really. Working in the residential school just helped me to see the whole picture of um, yeah. what it's like um, to support children throughout the 24 hours, really. And that's helped me when I moved to Cambridgeshire because I, I was there and I helped to turn that school round out of special measures. That was my first special measures school. Oh. Um, so that was a huge thing I did, yes. really, and worked very hard on that. It was a lot of work. Um, and we did get the school to be outstanding, which I was very proud of. During the time that you've been a head teacher, well, your, the whole of your teaching career, you've seen government policy drift from A to B. In, inclusion was a very big buzzword and mm -hmm. as you mentioned they shut down a lot of special <laughs> schools yep. because the idea was to include the children in normal schools mm -hmm. which worked to a degree mm -hmm. but now I can see that it's shifting slightly back the other way again how do you feel about that? Well I think it's about parental choice really although they closed some special schools down when I worked in Shropshire they did mm -hmm. keep some so they didn't close them all down. Mm. Well, um, no. So some children so, are so um, severely disabled that you, they couldn't possibly exactly. be Exactly. They needed quite a specialist provision. Mm. And I think that's what our special schools really are for, is the more specialist provision. Even though at Spring Common we have specialist provision, we do work really hard to get the children out into the community and to have um, participation in, in, in everyday life, because that's where, if ultimately where we want them to be. The days of when children were removed away from society 
I think of, you know, that's the, the, the biggest change I've seen in my career. I was going to say to you, <laughs> have you noticed the attitudes of parents changing? Whereas possibly when you first started, they were quite happy to accept what was being provided. But now they're much more active and saying, this is what I want for my child. Yeah, I think it was very much a medical model. They're very much dependent, yes. a lot of dependency. Um, and I think now we do have families that have their own needs and they may have more than one special needs child I've got families here and it's really hard isn't it to have one child imagining having you know two or three special needs children you know I really think they're amazing those parents really and they do stick you really with find a family that's got yeah we have a few families three, here or... yes I have one Good family heaven. here with three children and I have other families you know they may not have their children in this school but they've got special needs and they're in um, you know secondary or primary schools and you know that is really difficult and I think people in society often forget that you know those parents having to work extremely hard every day. If anyone needs a medal, they do often. So how did you come to be at Spring Common? The school went into special measures and at the time I was a local authority inspector and tried to find somebody to come and, and run the school till they made a decision about who would leave the school and uh, we got to a position where I couldn't fight and there were so many difficulties. So um, I offered to leave my local authority job because I became a local authority inspector for special education in Cambridgeshire and then became the acting head and then applied for the job. <laughs> and right. we managed to, um, over a very short time, move the school out of special measures and that's why moving to become outstanding was so special. And here at Spring Common you take children from quite young right through to 19 that's right <laughs> and then I noticed on your website which is a really good website that I would recommend to anyone to have a look at you talk about a special courses or taking them on further from 19 through to 25 the, the government policies changed. We had um, a lot of policy around that. So we now look at children from 0 to 25. So that is our next challenge, isn't it? What happens to children from 19 to 25? So that's something that a lot of people who are leading in special education are very interested in. What's the best thing that you like about being involved with these children? I think what I enjoy is seeing the difference we make. And although it may seem, you know, we see that on lots of adverts, but I think we do genuinely see that. And it's a shared experience with the parents, really, how the children are developing. And that is with all the staff. The staff here are amazing and really get very excited when we get very tiny little gains. You know, they'll run along the corridor. Absolutely. Somebody managed to sit up now or they managed to do this now and they get very excited about it. And that is fantastic and um, that's what makes you want to get up in the morning and come again, isn't it? In my career, I've been fortunate that I've done some international education and I've been to other countries. And, you know, when you see how much we have, I did some work where I went to Ghana and South Africa and you, you come back and I know when I came back, the first thing I did was touch my lovely walls and think, oh, this lovely school. And we take a lot of things for granted, really. And, you know, we have so much that we have in place in the UK and we should be very proud of what we offer for um, our children with special education because it's not the same across the world. Well, I did do some work at one time in um, Bulgaria and we helped to support them and now they're using all that knowledge and passing that along to other providers and I think the more we do that the more we can influence what happens. It's, it doesn't take a lot of effort to do that. You know, once we got the outstanding judgment, which, you know, was amazing, really. I never imagined it would ever happen, really, because there's so many different key stages yes. and um, such a lot of different types of children. It's an area school at Spring Common. I never imagined it would... You know, I got to the point, well, will this ever really happen? We were all working incredibly hard, and when we were told we were... You know, we were outstanding. We, you know, I cried. Everybody in the room, in this room, cried. We were just so excited. So um, obviously, since then, we've just tried to maintain that and do more things. So you know, that's what happens yes. when you get to that level. So the future for Spring Common? Where can you go? Past well, uh, excellence. <laughs> well, maintaining the quality is important to us. But our next project is um, um, recently been granted um, um, permission to open the new special school at Alcumbry Wheels. So that's going to be part of our trust and open in 2020. So that's our next 
project really. That will just mean that we can have Spring Common at Alconbury Weald and the two schools hopefully will be able to work together. So if there's a, a young teacher out there listening to you, would you encourage them to go into special education? I really, really would. And we often get people who come here who are doing their initial teacher training just for an awareness visit. And um, we just say, well, you know, it's hard work, but, you know, the rewards far outweigh all that effort, really. And um, these special children do need special people to care for them, really. Yes. And to educate them. And we need the very best people. So, mm. you know, it's important to realise that you're doing something that's really worthwhile. I can that see that you need special people. Yeah. Hence, you are a very inspiring woman. Oh, thank you very much for that. <laughs>
with plastic. It's very difficult to buy anything without any plastic packaging. Yeah, the supermarkets don't give you any paper bags. You can't actually buy loose stuff. Do you know what I did the other day? After all of this hit the news, I was out into my local supermarket and I was buying fruit and vegetables and I just picked everything up that I wanted and put it in the trolley. And they were having to weigh it all separately. Fair enough. But I just thought, you know, and I put it into my into my recyclable carrier bag that I take in out of the boot of the car and I popped it all in there. I put it all in the one bag. It's all very well that if it had been squashy little things, it probably wouldn't work so well. Tomatoes, I guess, you're, you're absolutely right, yeah. It was bad enough for some of the stuff. But I had a lot of things like apples and oranges and mm. onions and things like that. You can just pick them up. You've got a lot without a doubt But I'm thinking I'm wondering whether it costs shops a lot more to provide paper bags than plastic bags. You'd think there wouldn't be a lot of difference. I'll bet it does. Maybe. Yeah, Maybe. I can imagine it might well do. Mm. They always used to provide us with um, paper bags to put your mushrooms in, but I haven't seen a paper bag for a mushroom for quite a long time now. So the point of the, this issue, the whole point really is about general plastic use, is ending up in the oceans, whether it's micro bits or lots of bags or the um, plastic bits putting four cans of beer together, you know. Yes, I always cut them now. Yeah, a lot of people do now. I cut them so that nothing can get its neck trapped in it. Mm. Not that you're buying beer, are you? Well, no, <laughs> no, not really. But my husband gets, gets beer like that mm. and I always cut the plastic things, but they come in other things as well, orange cans and yeah. mind you, I don't really buy them either. Mm. So it is just beer, to be fair, that I don't drink. I was considering the problem. I, we went to a, a different shop that I'd never been to the other day and I saw a whole load of these water bottles where you, you refill them and use them in the car and you turn them upside down and they don't leak and all this business. Sounds like hamster bottles <laughs> upside down. They have a little tube that you can suck out of, Bobby. No. <laughs> and this particular one that my husband fell in love with and decided to buy had a, a kind of a filter in the top that you put your ordinary water in and it re-filtered it. And I thought to myself, I thought that English water was supposed to be the purest and the mm -hmm. best sort of water that you can get anywhere in the world. And here we are, re-filtering our filtered water. <laughs> I knew right off when I first kept my eyes on you But hours are to know you've been my heroes too so who has not been feeling 100% over the past two or three weeks? Isn't January just ghastly for bugs and flu and colds? I know, Bobby, you're coughing. I'm coughing. I haven't had the flu. I, I know that people who have had the flu have been really unwell with it. Yeah, I've seen that. I went into work this week and they were dropping like flies. But was that with a cold or with the flu? Because I think with the flu, you know, generally it lasts a week or two and you're flat yeah. on your back. And you can't really get out of bed. You feel dizzy. No you feel you dreadful. Yeah. You feel like you're going to die. Yeah. And it, it just makes you feel so down as well. You think you're never actually going to make it. But I, I remember I had the flu once. And I remember lying there thinking, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> Which is ridic sounds ridiculous, of course. Because, you know, it's... it's <laughs> but I did feel like that. Mm. Coughing in the background too. And now you're locked in a room with two coffers. This is a very interesting question, isn't it, really? Because... Should you go to work when you've got a nasty cough like this? Because if you do, you're going to spread it around and everybody else will get it and then they'll thank you not. Or should you should you just... Capitulate. I know, I always feel it's capitulating and I hate being off sick. How long do you stay off? This is 21st Century Women. Mesh implants have been in the news recently because many women who've had the implants fitted have complained of debilitating pain. Kath Sansom, who herself had a mesh implant fitted and then removed, started up an action group when she started to understand how widespread the problem is. Linda Ness spoke to her about the campaign. I'm joined by Kath Sansom, a local journalist who's just been named by The Independent as one of the female groundbreakers of 2017 because of her successful Sling the Mesh campaign. 
Mesh implants are used to treat women who suffer from prolapse and incontinence and men who have hernias. These implants have proved controversial because of the damage they cause when they go wrong. And the Sling the Mesh campaign has recently been making the headlines. The issue has been described as the biggest health scandal since thalidomide. Kath, you started the Sling the Mesh campaign in 2015. Could you tell us why you became involved with the topic in the first place? Yes, I had two babies. The second one was uh, very big at £9.11. And I suffered what one in three women actually suffer after babies, mild stress incontinence. So what that meant was perhaps if I was trying to jump on the trampoline with the kids or um, work out in a Zumba class or a sneeze when I actually needed to go to the toilet, I'd have a little bit of an accent. To be mm. fair, it was only mild. But at the time, it felt quite invasive. And I'd heard about this operation. It was very much sold to me and everyone else as a quick fix. So I thought, you know what, why not? I'm going to go for it. So I had what's called a TVT tape, which is made of plastic mesh. I didn't know it was made of plastic mesh at the time. And I had that put in in 2015. And immediately I had incredible pain in my legs, my feet, in my groin. And I knew something was seriously wrong. I knew this was more than just post-operative pain. I was very much ignored by my surgeon when I went back and told him about all the pain I was in. He denied it was anything to do with the operation and told me I'd probably got a slip disc, by which time I'd been in touch with some other women who'd been campaigning for many years but had pretty much been ignored. And I was so angry at the injustice of what was happening to women that I set up Sling the Mesh within 10 weeks of having that first operation. I set it up with 20 women in 2015 and in 2018 my group now has nearly 5,200 members. I know that's incredible the the growth and I think particularly recently when it's been hitting the headlines there's been a lot on about it hasn't there in the media. There has. This time last year, there was about a 1,000 members. And then once we went on some of the mainstream daytime TV shows, we've been in all the nationals. I, as a local journalist, uh, I've got free reign to write whatever uh, stories I like for our local paper. So the combination of all these things, radio interviews, obviously the word is getting out amongst uh, women and men um, going for hernia operations that these surgical mesh implants do come with a risk that we're not warned about. Mm-hmm. So, but of course, people are realizing either, oh my goodness, I'm suffering that same pain that the women are talking about, or they come to the page going, okay, I've just had a consultation, I've been offered this operation, I haven't been told any risks, I want to come here and, and research what could happen if things go wrong so the media has been really really important in getting the word out to women distressingly for me as running the page and seeing the growth is seeing the amount of new members join saying wow I've been suffering for two years five years ten years even one was 12 years being told no your pain has nothing to do with your mesh implant and being ignored and made to go away. And it's only when they join my page they realise they're not a mystery patient and they're not Mm -hmm. suffering alone. And that is shocking, actually, the level of... um, I don't don't even know the right word. I don't know if deceit is the right word, but the the people are not giving the whole truth and surgeons are denying that the pain has anything to do with it. And that's wrong. Surely now that this has become joined up and so many people who have coincidentally had this operation and are suffering from the same symptoms, surely the surgeons must now be, you know, really looking twice at this whole operation. We're in a situation now whereby it is very clear there is a massive problem here. All vaginal mesh implants were banned in New Zealand at the end of last year. In Australia, they're looking very closely at it. There's been a a huge ongoing Senate inquiry by all of their politicians. Globally, it's growing. So in this country, they are very aware of the problems. But what is going on is... Obviously, surgeons are now worried uh, about litigation, but additionally, they're worried because uh, for the last 20 years, mesh has very much been heavily marketed as the gold standard fix. Mm -hmm. So all new surgeons coming into gynecology, really, they're one-trick ponies. They only know mesh operations. (laughs) So if it was to suddenly be banned, there'd be a whole army of surgeons who wouldn't know how to uh, fix incontinence or prolapse 
or indeed hernia, say, using the old-fashioned methods. So I'm mindful that there's this fear out there by surgeons of, wow, what do we do now? Some of them do say that it's a small percentage. Um, the NHS, I think, show that the risks um, of things going wrong are between 1% and 3%. Your figures yeah. say it's more like 15%. Yeah, well, there's a study uh, by a very respected team of surgeons that say that the risk is at least 15%. There's also been a study of the NHS's own readmission figures uh, which show the risk is 10%. And, and if I can just break down even that 10% figure... That's that's women who have had to go into an NHS hospital overnight because of a mesh complication. Now, that doesn't include women who've gone to a private hospital because private, there's no audit in private hospital. That's what I've discovered running this campaign, which is shocking in itself. Mm-hmm. And that 10% figure also doesn't include all the women just going back and forth to their doctors, either being ignored or just having pain medication or constant cystitis they're having antibiotics so it doesn't include those women but also there's a lot of women who go back to their surgeon he just which is so awful the mesh can shrink and slice through a vaginal wall and what a surgeon can do in in outpatients is just trim that mesh and restitch over the vaginal skin that isn't included in those 10 percent figures really behind that yes So behind the statistical schemes, you can now start to get a picture. There are way more women suffering, even than that 10% figure. And I would hedge a bet that we're closer to 25, 30% of women suffering. And it's my understanding that the longer you have the mesh in, it's actually part of its job is to kind of bond into your tissue so that it becomes impossible to remove the thing after a while. To be fair, between four and six weeks, that mesh implant has already embedded into your tissues. Wow. Um, because unlike metal hip implants or, you know, the PIP breast implants, mm-hmm. that they're the latest medical device scandals, if you like, that have hit the headlines. With those devices, what happens, the body creates like a capsule around it, if you like. So with the breast implants, they just remove the entire capsule and then they can put new implants in. It was still not great, but it, you could remove these things. Yeah. Mesh is very different because of the nature of the fact that it's a mesh. The tissue and the nerves and everything can grow through that mesh. So everything then becomes embedded. Mm. So our way of describing it is that it's like trying to get chewing gum out of matted hair. So even after six weeks, it probably wouldn't matter if you'd had an implant six weeks or 13 years, it's embedded and it's major operation to try and remove that. Are these yeah. operations still happening at the moment, Kath? Oh my goodness, yes. All over Britain in hospitals. And what's more worrying is that since all the media coverage, what some surgeons are starting to say to women is, don't worry, we don't use the mesh in the media, we use a tape. Now, they get round that because of a play on words. In NHS paperwork, they call this operation introduction of attention-free vaginal tape. So they call it a tape. And because the word mesh isn't used in NHS paperwork, surgeons think that then gives them the leeway to be able to tell women, don't worry, we don't use the mesh in the media. So I'd really like to get that point across to any women listening. If, if, if your surgeon has told you that, then yes, tape is mesh because tape is made of plastic mesh and it's just a play on words. So that would be a really good point to get across. There's one woman that we do know of who has actually died through complications of having a mesh fitted, isn't there? I'm sure there's more than the one woman we know of. The Mm. the woman we know, are you talking about Chrissy from Canada? Yes, yes I am. Yes. So what happened with Chrissy is she... And many other women in, in campaign groups globally, uh, a lot of them suffer from uh, urinary tract infections, which is the medical word for cystitis. Mm-hmm. So what a lot of women listening will know you have to do if it gets really bad, you have to go and get antibiotics to mm-hmm. treat that because that's mm-hmm. the only thing that will fix it. But if you're getting these UTIs constantly, you start becoming antibiotic resistant. Yeah. Now, I ran a survey on Sling the Mesh recently and it showed that 54% of women on our site suffer from constant urinary tract infections. That's shocking in itself. But within that survey, we then found that 5%, so 1 in 20 of the women on our site are becoming antibiotic resistant. Now, that's a really high number. And what that means is that you you keep going back to your doctor. Eventually, there is only perhaps one or two antibiotics that will work to treat your urine infection. And when they stop, you have to go into hospital to be put on an IV drip for really, really super strong antibiotics because you become risk of sepsis. 
Mm. So what happened with Chrissy from Canada, every single time she got a urine infection, she had to go into hospital on the drip. And in the end, even that drip didn't work. And so she died. And what is really upsetting, let's bring this home to Cambridgeshire. So in Cambridgeshire, we have a woman who is becoming antibiotic resistant. There's one left that she can take. And once that doesn't work she too will have to go into hospital and she she's dangerously close now so that brings it home to you just how awful this is and if there's anyone listening who has had this operation have been maybe even been having problems and not realize that they've been related obviously joining your action group would be the first thing that they should do so they can link up with other people this thing the mesh campaign so they can link up with other people and you know get more information about what's going on yes that would be the best thing to do we've got so many women there who can offer advice support i tell you what's amazing that's happening now is there's lots of little regional groups springing up that meet up regularly for coffee they go to each other's houses they'll phone each other up and actually when you're suffering from something like a mesh implant really and truly the only people that understand how awful it is are other women going through the of same course thing. Like, i think yes. we'll all know that in life yes. don't we so, so to join up would be really great because you you can speak to others, find out if you think that is what your problem is. If you want advice on removal surgeons, we can we can obviously do our best to try and help and support you. And if if you're worried, we can hopefully ease some fears. We can advise you if you've been offered this operation. We can advise you of the traditional alternatives so you can go fully armed with knowledge to your surgeon to, to know what to ask for. But certainly, yeah, do make a request to join on Facebook and we can do our best to help. That was Kath Sansom speaking to Linda Ness. And a lot of uh, food for thought there, I think, that you'll agree. This was all new to me. I'd never heard of any of this. I, I think I must be very out of touch with stuff. I hadn't heard about it either. I missed the news, I'm afraid. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago it was um, actually mentioned on the news. And it's it's really quite a serious issue. First of all, I'd hate to have, have to have something like that put inside of me, I guess. But if the problem is very, very serious and you don't have any choice, you, need, you do need help because the consequences of incontinence are not very great either. If this mesh, but uh, as was explained in that piece, they're not calling it the mesh anymore because it's got connotations. They're talking yeah, they're, they're talking about tapes. Tapes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mean. Well, it's exactly as the mesh. Yeah. It's exactly the same yeah. thing. So they're doing the same piece of surgery and putting in the same same kit, by all accounts. And it does sound like quite a serious problem. Some of these women are saying that as soon as this thing was put in, they were in considerable pain. Some of them have lost their mobility. You know, they're in really? wheelchairs. Oh, yes, it's, it's been incredibly serious. If you think that you have suffered from this problem, certainly do join that group. It's on uh, Facebook and called Sling the Mesh. I would recommend that you have a look at that page. And you can also speak to lots of other people who've been affected by that. That's all we have time for in this edition of 21st Century Women. Our huge thanks go to Kath Sansom, Dr Kim Taylor and Gary Chapman and to our contributor Louise Wilson. If you're listening to HCR 104FM, next up is The Country Show with John and Jackie Manders. And in Cambridge 105, it's Saturday Sport. This show will be available as a podcast on iTunes and on Mixcloud. We'll be back in February. Until then, it's goodbye from Bobby Jones. Goodbye. From Liz Kelly. Goodbye. And from me, Linda Ness. See you next time.